constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio today is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're fortunate to be uh, joined by a um, longtime uh, correspondent and um, um, early friend of iFoundry, uh, Jim Sporer from IBM. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hi, Dave. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the well, intro. No, it's it's uh, great to have you here. And, and Jim, we want to talk about some of the, the cool things that you're doing at IBM here in a minute. But early in the show, we like to get to know our guests a little um Bit better and let our listeners get to know them a little, a little, them a little bit, a little bit, a little bit better. You're you're a scholar, a corporate leader. You've had a distinguished career at um, uh, Apple, IBM, and elsewhere. Uh, but let's um, let's go back to the log cabin or hop in the time machine. Your choice. And what what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Yeah, sure. And I I just want to say that, you know, when we connected, I'll get back to the log cabin in a bit, but uh, when we connected at iFoundry, uh, it was uh, Diane Fidel on my IBM team who got us connected. She discovered you, so to speak, and said, hey, Jim, you got to hear this Dave Goldberg guy. His, his ideas really resonate with um, some of the things that uh, we've been working on and developing at IBM. And then you were gracious enough to come keynote at one of our conferences in Dublin, Ireland. So it's yeah. been, you know, just uh, fabulous to get to know you and your ideas and and uh, certainly the, the themes and the, the whole new engineer really resonate strongly with what we've been trying to develop at IBM. Well, and thanks, for, I, and thanks for that. Glenn, love it. And as long as we're shouting out to Diane, I, if she's listening, hi, Diane. Thanks. Thanks for that, uh, that intro long ago. But anyways, look back to your log cabin or time machine. <laughs> Yeah, so I grew up in Maine, and um, it wasn't a log cabin, but it was a farmhouse, and uh, we, uh, you know, had cows, chickens, the whole bit, and uh, uh, one of the really early influences, uh, my grandmother lived with us, and she was a teacher in a one-room school, if you can believe that. Up in Maine, we were like 30 years behind the times, but... um, in the late 50s and early 60s, I remember um, her, you know, probably I was like three years old, she would take me to her one-room school and uh, light the fire <laughs> in the stove, and and uh, I got to see six grades learning, and I was mostly doing coloring in those days, but I just remember looking up and getting this amazing preview of what education was going to be, what learning was going to be across all disciplines in sixth grade, so there's a plug for the one-room schoolhouse. 
Yeah, that's actually uh, thinking back and thinking of what the one rule schoolhouse was and some of the things that we say we value now of community and uh, learning, you know, teaching as part of learning. Uh, there was a lot that was built into that that we, we sort of lost when we made it more efficient. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't very efficient, but it sure was fun because I remember when I got to uh, official school, uh, the first day that it was really cold enough that the pond next to the one-room school froze over, uh, we always got that day to just bring our ice skates and go skating. So (laughs) learning took uh, second place to community and fun sometimes and seemed to work out just fine back in those days. And and Jim, as you know, on this program, we're interested in the kind of unleashing experiences that Mark Somerville and I talk about in the whole new engineer. Uh, and they come in, one of the things that I love about this part of the show is they come in so many different flavors, shapes, and sizes. But, you know, you've had a career that's uh, gone where, where you wanted it to. And I'm just curious, um, you know, what what were some of the experiences that you had or some of the people along the way that um, helped you helped give you courage to go your own way? Yeah, um, another great question. And I certainly have been very lucky, Dave. So I, you know, I thank my lucky stars every single day when I get up because I get up early and I can actually see the stars most days here in California. And I just thank my lucky stars that I've had such an interesting and rewarding life. Um, you know, my, my father started the Boy Scout troop. Um, mm-hmm. One of my high school teachers, believe it or not, up in Maine was Stephen King, the famous author. And, and he kind of hit it big uh, while he was my teacher. And I remember the day he came into the class, he'd sold his uh, first book, Carrie, and had Salem's Lot in the works. And he was happy. And that was kind of an inspiration to a lot of us that if you stick to your guns, uh, no matter uh, where you come from, you know, you can come from little small towns in Maine and make it big if, if you have a passion. And if you persevere through, you know, hardships and good times and bad times and, and build a, you know, supportive network around you of people who um, can help you get uh, your dreams realized. And I remember, um, you know, being lucky enough to go to MIT. um, And that was certainly a big boost to my um, worldview uh, coming from a small town in Maine. And getting to go to the, you know, top, uh, one of the top, anyway, science and technology universities in the world was, you know, just huge for me to see, you know, that if you really have a passion, you really care about something, you're interested in it, you enjoy it, and you work hard at it, you know, you can go go quite a ways. And and that's, and I want to... Th- um, stick on that for a little bit because sometimes you know some of the guests we have get all kinds of guests on the show and some of them have had mixed experiences in higher education some we've had guests who who uh, got their higher ed through the school of hard knocks and the marine corps and things like that and 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 it's fairly uh, fashionable uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know folks like peter Thiel kind of uh, knocking um Higher ed, but uh, you know, you you've been a higher education liaison. You you went and got a PhD in AI and at uh, Yale. Um, it looks like your your higher ed experience has been part of uh, an integral part of your journey. Comment. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely has, and I know many people who've taken alternative routes. So I'm not 
saying that's the only path, but it certainly was the right one for me, you know, because I'm, I'm very verbal. I, you know, reading books is like, yeah. you know, one of the most enjoyable things in the day, right? So different people have different um, uh, capabilities, different skills, different worldviews. So I think there's many pathways. But yeah, for me, higher education was like, oh my gosh, I get, you know, I was one of those students like, how many courses can I cram into my schedule? <laughs> sure. I was much less concerned with grades and much more concerned about how do I get the maximum benefit of this, you know, precious time in higher education. And I, I think, uh, you know, that, that served me well because uh, even though I was majoring in physics, I took enough computer science to know, boy, that's easy and that's nice. I like that. I took a lot of social sciences, arts, and humanities, and even met my uh, future wife because I had an interest in Shakespeare and took some courses uh, in Shakespeare at a a local sister university. So, um, yeah, yeah, higher education was hugely valuable to me, and um, I've you know, often thought that um, as wonderful as it was for me at the time, I think higher education has to transform and industry has to transform if we're really going to serve the needs of the future. And um, Rick Miller, uh, the president of Olin Engineering, who I'm sure, um, you know, certainly you write about in the book and probably has been on this show, he um uh, suggested to the National Academy of Sciences, they're running a workshop on integrated uh, liberal arts and humanities into the sciences, and later this week I'll be uh, taking part in that workshop talking about the transformation that higher education has to undergo. And, but it's not just higher education, it's really, you know, as we'll get into uh, sure. in a bit, um, everything's going to be transforming. Yeah. Actually, and I was just looking at the calendar. Rick, Rick is uh, uh, you're the warm up act for Rick, so Rick's going to be on next week, um, uh, okay. uh, next Monday. So uh, I, I said that with a smile on my face. But um, and and actually, so you know, in, in terms of how things are changing, you know, you, you're you're working for a company that's un- undergone changes and continues to undergo changes. I I. You know, I started my uh, college education in the early 70s, and my first programming of a computer, of an IBM mainframe computer, was with punch cards. And and um, on, only about 10 years into it did I get to use a time-sharing system. IBM remains kind of an iconic company in the minds of you know my colleagues from back then. Uh, and now we're, we've got uh, Apple's, Intel's, Google's, and other uh, startups. But um, what 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 kind of company is IBM today? Well, um, you know, you're right. IBM's 106 years old, and actually the area that I'm in out here in Silicon Valley in 1943, this is where IBM set up their punch card division. Um, and, and when I was in high school, I was 16 years old when I wrote my first program on an IBM key punch machine and yep. um, sent the cards by mail to the University of Maine at Orno and had them run on the mainframe there. And a week later, I got my first printout so I could get my first bug out. So I remember the punch cards and IBM certainly had an influence then. But today, IBM is transforming into a... Uh, cloud platform and cognitive solution company. 
So that's, uh, that's the big transformation we're going through right now. Um, and I guess you don't get to be a big old company. I guess IBM's around 80 billion revenue per year, uh, hundreds of thousands of employees. You don't get to be big and old unless you periodically transform yourself. And that's certainly uh, what had to happen in the Gerstner years. And IBM's going through probably the, you know, at least the second or third largest transformation in its history as we retool for the cloud and cognitive era. Well, and and that's interesting. And looking at your resume, you joined the company right around the time that Lou Gerstner was remaking the company for, well, it was remaking itself over the years when it, you know, back in accumulated the four technologies that formed the company in the 1800s that going forward into the early 1900s but so it's always it's actually been remaking itself over its entire history but the that that big um, well I guess there was a, a a loss which was um, sh- shook the company's foundation and and Lou, you know Lou Gerstner came in but you've been you've been part of that the whole time what how's uh, how's the I guess and I'm actually interested more culturally than technologically technologically how's the company a different company today in terms of how IBMers interact with each other yeah I I think the one of the big things that IBM did a few years ago um, and uh, um, was to really help us transform into the cognitive era. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had over 250,000 IBMers take part in what was called a cognitive build. So Jenny Rometty, our CEO, asked every IBMer to think about what kind of cognitive system uh, would help you do your job better make you more creative, more productive, and don't just think about your job at IBM, think about your broader roles in society and your life, what types of cognitive systems would help you uh, lead a you know, more creative, more productive life. So that transformation of getting everybody in IBM to start thinking about that was great because Everybody realized the the key to these cognitive systems is that we're you know we're all drowning in data and information. You know nobody can keep up with their you know email, social media, all the books you have to read. Um, yeah. So so our approach is very much um, about augmenting uh, intelligence, and um, so artificial intelligence is more about robots and you know, autonomous machines and our approach, which we call cognitive computing, because there's the cognitive part, that's people thinking, and there's the computing part. Those are the smart machines that are helping us uh, become more creative and productive. So that that really is the flavor of the of this transformation is helping all our employees and all our customers um, understand how cognitive systems can help them become more creative and productive, more innovative, if you will. And um, I want I think we want to pursue that some more, and we'll uh, probably do that in the last segment as we as we talk in more detail about some of the things that you've been doing with uh, uh, ser- service science and and um, and uh, cognitive uh, cognitive um, uh, computing. But um, you know, we met uh, when in connection, uh, and I think we met in person in um, in Dublin and. Uh, and and talk and at the time and still IBM uh, has this vision of the T-shaped professional and so what's that right. about? Well, yeah. So 
in, in the old days, things changed slowly. And so uh, the way it worked is um, higher education would um, prepare people and launch them into the world. And, and there's mostly eye shapes. And, and what we mean by that is um, you had to be deep in your discipline. So if you were a physics major, you had to be deep in physics. If you were um, you know, a biology major, deep in biology management, deep in management, arts and humanities, um, you know, maybe deep in 21st century literature. Yep. But um, today the world's changing more rapidly. Um, if you look at the, you know, any particular company and you look at what they sell um, today and, and uh, if they're in, you know, these fast-changing areas like uh, information technology, at least, um, you know, things change. Um, and so uh, also in um, the, the problems that we're tackling today typically are more complex system problems. And this is, yes. of course, you know, right out of the whole new engineer. Um, as we work on these complex systems, they're not just technological systems. There's not just stuff in them. There's people. <laughs> and, and so if you don't have an ability to work on multidisciplinary project teams, you know, where there's the business person, there's the technology person, there's the legal person, there's the communication person who might be arts and humanities. All of those uh, I-shaped people, it turns out, when the world is going quickly, um, if they can't communicate with each other, that slows progress down. So, um, yeah, IBM's a huge advocate for T-shaped people, meaning um, you have uh, problem-solving depth like you did before, but you also have this communication breadth. And, um, and uh, just like the whole new engineer, our view, and just like Olin Engineering, our view is you don't get that breadth just by dabbling or reading a little bit about, oh, I wonder how a business person thinks. I'll read this business book and find out. No, the yeah. only real way to truly become T-shaped is to is to develop empathy for those other areas, a desire to learn them. And that comes out of being part of a real world, you know, project team. So if you're doing project based where you have multidisciplinary teams working on authentic problems, you know, often using open technologies, um, uh, that's, that's really the, the, the key to becoming T-shaped as, uh, as IBM refers to it. And we, we see depth in a discipline as just one type of depth. There's also yeah. some people know about healthcare, some people know about transportation, yeah. and you know some people but, are from you know uh, Europe, some people are from yeah. Japan, some people are from the Middle East. So we see uh, a variety of disciplines, a variety of systems, a variety of cultures, and to be deep in at least one of those <laughs> and yeah. have breadth, communication breadth across them all, that, that's exactly the type of person that IBM looks for. Yeah, and I, I think we need to dig into this in a little more depth, and I, why don't we take that up um, first thing in our, our next segment? We'll take a little Great. bit a little bit of a break right now. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Jim Sporer from IBM. Uh, stay with us, and we're gonna we're gonna dive uh, deeper and broader into the T-shaped uh, professional. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Yeah, welcome back. I'm Dave Goldberg, and this is Big Beacon Radio. Our second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution. And also, uh, the segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back um, in the second segment with uh, Jim Sporer from IBM. And, and Jim, we were talking about the, um, uh, the T-shaped uh, the, the T-shaped uh, professional, T-shaped engineer. And... Um, and you were saying, in, in, you know, that in in the old days, expertise um, was not enough, or ex, ex, in the old days, actually, expertise was enough. We got our disciplinary training; that was that was kind of enough, and and um, we worked in specialized departments that were devoted to that. We worked with other people that knew some of the same stuff that we did. The somehow between then and now, the world. Um, the world has has changed. What, are, and from your perspective, what are some of the important forces that have kind of made that approach to education obsolete? Yeah, I think you know there there are several key factors. One is certainly the pace of technological change in terms of you know um, you know just look at the smartphones, right? Still, you know, just barely a decade old and, and the, you know, the World Wide Web, you know, about uh, 25 years old. But the, the amazing technological, I, I guess uh, Thomas Friedman in the, his latest book calls it the age of acceleration. So we really are seeing um, that uh, this, uh, this Moore's Law matters, this doubling matters. So that's certainly one driver of change. Our tools are getting better. Um, many other things are on Moore's Law's curve besides information technology. When you look at you know, gene sequencing and, 
and various other things. So there, there, there is, you know, evidence that the um, costs of various, doing various things are, are dropping. So, and I guess they call that technology deflation. Um, but the other thing is the interconnectedness. Um, you know, this is, you know, some people talk about it as globalization. Um, others talk about it as interconnectedness. Um, you know, the fact that you can um, build virtual teams that span the globe um, much more easily and rapidly today. Um, those, those, are, those are two of the ma- major driving forces that, that have really uh, changed the way uh, projects work inside of industry and, so, uh, the, and the pace at which things are happening. So that's where, you know, just having expertise coming out of university used to be enough in, in industry over time. You might be one of those lucky people whose jobs never changed, basically, you know, did, did their, their same job, you know, enjoyed their same uh, work for years. But, but these days, um, you know, people will have more careers, they make more job changes. So uh, that, that's also a factor is um, people can't expect, um, you know, to prepare and launch and, and that's going to be enough. People have to be lifelong learners. And if, if you are going to be a lifelong learner, then, then being, you know, what we call T-shaped really helps because that, that broad part of the T is those communication skills that are going to allow you to build a network. So you may get your next job through somebody you know who, you know, isn't like you, but, you know, you have a connection to them. And um, also the broad part of the T is really about empathy and understanding what are the problems to be solved. Um, that th- those are those are some of the differences that are 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 making the shift from you know I shapes to T shaped lifelong learners more more and more of the the norm. Yeah, I, you know we we sweep a lot of this under the rug of globalization, and you know of course you know Tom Friedman's earlier um, the world is flat kind of writing and and. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rise of the creative era. We need a whole new mind. There are a lot of people have been writing for some time about these partially social phenomena. Part I, I, you're calling it out as economic. It seems to me is is um, is is right. And and it, part of it, and actually it's, it's so interesting the interaction of the technology to uh, both um, and it's sort of countervailing forces. It's almost like. Uh, so we have some companies that continue, like IBM, that continue to be big because they can take advantage of increasing returns to network scale. The more people who use right. Watson or mm-hmm. something, the more valuable it is. The and and then, but we also have this this kind of um, breaking apart of companies that were once large. Uh, I, and I have this uh, photograph of the River Rouge plant, uh, the Ford River Rouge plant, with a steel freighter parked out front. Mm-hmm. In 1947, and and you know Henry Ford's not making, or the Ford company's not making its own steel anymore. So sometimes we this this kind of sticking to your core competence kind of thing, it seems to me as a phenomenon of some of the the reduction of um, 
uh, the, the increased connectivity, but also reduction of uh, what Ronald Coase called transaction costs. That it's right. it's much easier to contract out for stuff and be be sure that the person's going to you know, that get an idea of what the person or company's reputation is and be able to do it. So many less of us. Uh, many fewer of us can expect to work for a big company our whole lives, and we'll and often and we'll move around more often. And many more of us um, uh, will be freelancers um, in our life and have to be pretty nimble ourselves in order to find employment. Comment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it's uh, you know that's one of the great unsolved policy problems of our time that. Uh, you know, we we don't have a really good sense of what the future of jobs are. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of um, uh, lists. <laughs> uh, I've even blogged about the top 55 jobs of the future. Um, but, you know, no one really knows. And especially in this cognitive era, there's, there's a lot of concerns about, um, you know, certain jobs being automated. Um, others being augmented. Um, so, so this is a really great example of the, um, you know, this, this notion that uh, we don't know exactly what the future is. We know it's going to be different. It's hard to prepare for. Um, and it has all these aspects. It has this technological aspect to it, the business model aspect, um, you know, the support economy. Um, there's a lot of underutilized resources, people's cars, people's rooms that are creating, you know, interesting, uh, interesting developments. And, and yet through all of this, um, we, we do see that uh, we, we are in a world where your, your network and your ability to communicate across your network and across you know, business, technology, design, humanities, communication, legal, um, those, those are the skills that really serve you well when you're, when you're working in a large company on these projects. Even in startup companies, I would argue, um, those, those are the same skills because you're either going to be working with people directly in the employee of the company or you're going to be working with outsourced versions of those, uh, those services in order to, to pretty much get anything done. Um, so, so, yeah. And, and the other thing is if, if, um, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with ONET, the Occupation Network, and that's a great resource uh, the Department of Labor started. You can go there and you can look at thousands of jobs, everything from accountant to zoologist and everything in between. And I did write a paper for AI Magazine um, on cognition as a service that talks about how all of those different possessions, um, those occupations, professions will be augmented in the future with with cognitive systems. So if you're a doctor, you'll have cognitive systems that help you be a better doctor. If you're a lawyer, you'll be a better cognitive system, you know, systems that help you be a lawyer. And IBM ran a contest when we first made our platform available uh, to faculty and students around the world. Now I think there's like 100,000 faculty and students worldwide that use our platform on a regular basis to build 
uh, different types of cognitive systems. But when we first did it, we ran a contest, and um, um, some students built, you know, cognitive systems to help doctors, others uh, for helping lawyers. But the the one the team that won was from University of Texas at Austin. And what was great about what they did is they surprised us. They actually built a cognitive system to help homeless people. And here we were thinking, you know, about all of these uh, occupations that are going to be transformed. But the University of Texas at Austin students um, provided examples of how cognitive systems are going to help the, you know, the the neediest um, in our society. And there's a lot of work now on cognitive systems to help uh, people with uh, mental disabilities and uh, certainly uh, blind uh, elderly is another great area for cognitive assistance. So, so that that that's interesting as well that um, uh, we are entering this era where where more and more of of what enables us is is not just these uh, better tools but these networks that uh, we're part of. And and actually, I, I was thinking back to something you said just a, a minute ago about. Um, you know, the importance of your network in in all of this and communication and and um, and I think it was Dan Pink in his first uh, book uh, Free Agent Nation said that you know one way in which employment was changing is that and he used the term loyalty loyalty um, which was once all, almost always placed with the company that you were going to spend your life with is now is is it's now really the locus of loyalty is now your network. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you you totally totally need networks these days, and and boy, that's sometimes hard to get um, people to understand is how just how important that network is, um, and 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 what it spans. Right? You know, um, the diversity of your network is really important to to provide lots of different options and lots of different connections. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, IBM helped us sponsor was the formation of a, a professional association, IZIP.org, the International Society of Service Innovation Professionals, which um, is uh, is a uh, professional association that, that that helps build these global networks. And many times. Um, engineers and and others are members of professional associations and that's a great way to build networks um another great way to build networks is to do um uh, as students is to do these real world problems with industry mentors so yeah there's lots of different ways to build networks and of course we've got these amazing um social media tools um you know, and uh, they're they're also an interesting way to build networks if if people use them uh, strategically and wisely for that purpose. It's it's a really great way to connect with people who um, who you have something to share with and have something to share with you. And now, part part of this, you and you sent me a recent uh, presentation from this year, T-shaped talent and better building blocks. And mm-hmm. um, we've talked a little bit about the T-shaped side of things and how, and even how that's how the T, the idea of what it means to be T-shaped has evolved beyond mere disciplinary expertise to things like um, system sectors and cultures. But mm-hmm. I, this bill and and um, I. You know, one of my advisors was 
the king of building blocks, John Holland. And so I, but I'm curious what you, you, you mean by the term building blocks in this context. What are we talking about? Right, right. And I should mention that all my presentations are up on slideshare.net slash spore. And if anybody goes out to those, they'll see um, one slide that shows Legos. Those are building blocks. And then on the other side of the same page is a robot-controlled Lego uh, robotics kit. So, um, uh, you know, the building blocks are getting better. As you look at the um, <laughs> the key punch cards, Dave, that you and I started programming on, and, and I'm just so envious of this generation, they get these amazing building blocks. You know, the, the Watson Blue Mix building blocks, a lot of the open source technology building blocks, you know, speech recognition. When I, when I left MIT, I went to work for a speech recognition company, and, and believe me, our speech recognition in the late 1970s is nowhere near as good. And it yeah. cost thousands of dollars to do that um, back then if you wanted to have a speech recognition system. Now, everybody's got a speech recognition system on their smartphone. And so um, yeah. also in those presentations, there's a, if you scan through them, you'll see a picture of a dog. Uh, Wendy Murphy, who has uh, worked with Diane Fidel and I here at IBM, she sent me a picture of her dog one day, and I, I, it, it was an unusual picture, so I uploaded it to uh, one of the websites that recognizes images, and, and uh, it was hilarious. It, was, it got it really wrong. It, it, it thought it was, um, you know, uh, some, uh, couldn't really tell what it was, but it thought there might be two bears in the picture and and uh, but but I laughed and I had a good laugh and I sent it around to a bunch of my friends working in artificial intelligence because I thought they would get a good laugh at you know how you know uh, AI systems still have trouble with certain types of images but the next morning when I woke up I said wait a minute we just all gave a whole bunch of feedback to this uh, this website so let's try the same image today and bingo. It was, it still got it wrong, but it was much, much closer. And it was that feedback. So here are building blocks because they're learning are getting better overnight. Um, I should mention, I also uploaded it to our IBM, uh, uh, Bluemix, uh, image understanding and it got it right. <laughs> but, but, uh, I knew it was hard for, for some of the others. So I, I uploaded it, but that's, that's, that's the building blocks getting better. And, and, and maybe even one more story on this, because, you know, I, I turned 61 years old this year, so, you know, I've seen a few decades of change, right? And, you know, my wife has always asked after me in my garage, I've got this one corner that's just piled to the ceiling with boxes, and it's like my old stereo, my old record player, my albums, my video cameras, my cameras, my old computers, and, you know, that, that stack of boxes, that's you know, tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> that I had to invest over the years. And um, now my smartphone, much cheaper, does all of that and more. It's got the built-in speech recognition, language translation, all these different types of services from the app economy. So, so you know, things have gotten cheaper. Things have gotten smaller. Um, uh, there's more ways to combine things, you know, all of these building blocks. There's more ways to put them together in, in the API economy. So, so in some sense, the opportunities for entrepreneurship have never been better. But, you know, still our, you know, education system is, is more in the mode of, you know, um, what, it, what it's been for decades of, of not 
not so much preparing students for these new opportunities, these new team-based project entrepreneurial opportunities where you can configure things. Now, I'm painting with a pretty broad brush. There obviously are some excellent programs at various uh, universities that I work with that try to uh, instill that. But, but you know, I'd say that's, you know, that's the 5 or 10% of the new stuff at the university. And there's always new stuff at a university. But, you know, 80, 80% maybe hasn't really embraced those changes and and seen that the building blocks are getting better and that, you know, it really is the time of the T-shape. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think there's well, and, and, cert- and certainly, uh, and, and maybe we should address this as well, I, the, uh, the existing educational system hasn't em- embraced the, the reduction in cost at all. In fact, if any, you know, the education costs continue to go through the roof in part because it hasn't embraced many of the things that that you've talked about. Let's uh, we need to take another uh, another break, um, but let's come back and talk a little bit more about some of what's um, um, what's missing educationally. What would fill what might fill those gaps, and then talk a little bit about. Um, some of the way that um, these uh, this cognitive computing, these cognitive um, uh, systems, and understanding cognitive systems will help help us in the future. How okay. about that? Uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Jim Spore. In the next system, we're going to do exactly that. Stay tuned. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored um, by Big Beacon and Lehigh's Mountaintop program. And join us uh, this June 21st to 23rd. Uh, uh, get your invitation to come to the first Educational Transformers Unconference uh, held at the Mountaintop Program at Lehigh University um, the 21st through the 23rd of June, just before the big ASWE conference. Write to me, at Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org. 
to find out more about this exciting unconference. And we're back with Jim Sporer from IBM. And Jim, we've been talking about uh, T-shapes and uh, a little bit about AI and, and how uh, AI and computation, how um, things uh, things that were hard to do a, f- a few years ago are easy, much easier to do and how that's changing um, so many things and, and some of the gaps that that's causing educationally. Uh, say, say more about uh, um, what some of the missing pieces are and what we might do to, to fill those gaps. Yeah, sure. So I think the the key term here is service, and and you can you can get uh, service from organizations. You can get service from you know professionals, other people, or you can get service from technology and um, things that uh, you know used to take a whole organization to provide a service. Uh, you know, eventually, as you get better and better tools to empower individuals, you know, an individual can provide that service pretty well. And then as the tools continue to get better and better and better, then then the technology itself can uh, provide that service. So this is one of the things that we study in in service science. And, and it's uh, definitely a trend of, you know, everything is a service. And, um, and, you know, that, that changes the way you look at the world. Well, and, and a lot of your work at IBM has been under this rubric of service science. So, um, for our listeners that may not have heard the term before, what is service science? Why is it important? Sure, sure. Everybody's heard of computer science, and they know that's the study of computers, and and what service science uh, studies all these different ways of providing service. And um, again, the interesting thing in um, computer science is is putting different computational elements together in different ways to create more and more sophisticated programs. And in service science, we study putting together the different types of service in more and more complicated ways to do more and more interesting things. And remember, the service may be a composition of uh, technology. It may be a composition of people and organizations. And and in a program, all you need is a computer to run it, right? But in a service system, you need incentives. You need value propositions. Things don't just work unless there's all of these incentives. So a lot of service science looks at the... Um, the evolution over time of these different types of win-win games or positive-sum games uh, that allow the the you know the complex uh, service system to have a, a certain type of dynamic. Uh, again, these ride-sharing things that are enabled by smartphones or or um, uh, place-sharing uh, systems, uh, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, all all of those collaborative economy. Uh, are, are interesting types of service systems. And, and it seems to me that, you know, so you know, there, there's, when we put the label science on, on things, well, first of all, as an engineer, I get annoyed because um, a lot of that's just claiming the high ground uh, status-wise as opposed to actually there being some real scientific knowledge or, or gain as opposed to kind of good old-fashioned engineering of, of a proper proper system but let, let's 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 table that discussion and and um, but it seems to me that you know one of the problems that we're having in education is that education because it is um, fundamentally reason based 
misses a lot of what's important to human beings, especially in the service sector. So a lot of what's important uh, when you go into a restaurant, um, yeah, there are things that are pretty rational and we can put in game theoretic terms, yada, yada, yada. But a lot of what you like is um, uh, the emotion, the affect and uh, of being served uh, properly by um, a, a well-trained waiter who actually um, cares mm-hmm. about how you feel. And so uh, it seems it seems a lot of a lot of what I've seen online about this kind of misses the affective part, and and much of it misses the fact that we're embodied human beings and we kind of walk around and and so for you know I think of leadership as something that is an embodied skill that mm-hmm. current AI has absolutely not a clue about. So right. so am I am I off base? Am I is it okay that we just continue to to take the the cognitive rational route, or or, or are we missing some stuff that's pretty important? Yeah, I think we're missing some stuff that's pretty important. That's kind of the fun part, <laughs> is that we don't have it all figured out. Um, but, I, but I do want to just mention that, you know, the, the long name for service science is service science management, engineering, design, arts, and public policy. Um, but because that's a mouthful and, and people, you know, we when we explain service science, we usually explain it in terms of computer science, right? And you can say computer engineering, you can say information systems management. I mean, all of these um, focal phenomena, you know, whether the focal phenomena is computational processes or the focal phenomena is value co-creation via service, um, you know, it's really multidisciplinary. And um, so, so, Good for you for calling me out on that because that's exactly well. I wasn't right. calling you out. I'm calling yeah. everyone. Everyone does this. You know, Mercury was a was a scientific achievement. Challenger was an engineering mm-hmm. disaster, and and mm-hmm. so um, it, when yeah. things go wrong, we tend to uh, yeah. blame the people actually responsible for making stuff work, yeah. which is which is fair. But the 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 people doing science kind of are in the back. Well, it's not my fault. I wasn't, you know, we weren't, we weren't studying that. So, but, uh, but no, but I, but I think that the other point, and, and actually this part of the hard part of writing a whole new engineer was kind of coming to the conclusion that yes, there are, you know, we wrote about the econ, you know, transaction cost economics. We wrote about network costs. We wrote about the technology, and that th- those were forcing functions. Mm-hmm. But that the real difference in the iFoundry experience and the Olin experience weren't sort of weren't wasn't about technology. It wasn't about even really content curriculum and pedagogy. It was about a different emo- level of emotional engagement of the students and a different cultural experience. And I just wonder if 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 the business world even can can really talk I don't think they can walk that walk but I, they can, I'm not even sure they can talk that talk I, I, I was embarrassed to talk mm-hmm. that talk in the writing of that book so I'm wondering if we've got a blind spot <laughs> yeah I, I you know that's one of my favorite parts of the book Dave because I, I, I thought that was the you know you'd really grabbed on to something that's hard that we don't understand and that is essential. So, um, you know, yes, we will be able to um, make progress uh, getting a deeper understanding of that over time, I'm sure. But, um, you know, it's, it's such an important thing that um, 
We do have um, in optimal experience for people, right? We have to have a certain amount of routine and we have to have a certain amount of challenge. And, yeah. you know, at all ages, if, if you don't have challenge, <laughs> um, you know, some people like a little more challenge, you know, other people like a little less challenge, but, but still it is that, um, that balancing act, you know, getting back to the T-shape, the T-shape is really a balancing act between depth and breadth and that they're both important, but yeah. But, you know, and you can be successful if you just have one or the other. But but if you really want to get the full experience, <laughs> you want to get a balance of, of both as much as you can. And and I think or an appropriate measure. And I think the same is true for human experience on challenge and routine. And that challenge part is you know, where passion comes in, where emotion comes in, because if, if you don't care, <laughs> you're not going to challenge yourself. You have to have that level of passion to be persistent. I, I guess that's, you know, Duckworth's Grit's book. But, yeah. but I, I, I totally agree that, you know, and it's not just gamification, right? Um, some people say, oh, that, that's, you know, those types of incentives, those emotional incentives are, are just, you know, we can gamify the world. I, I don't think so. I, I think you came closer in the whole new engineer um, where it's connecting to, you know, a purpose that matters to you. And, and again, this is where empathy comes in, I think, is... Yeah. You know, I, I know we're about out of time here, but but I remember this high school kid who came up with a better test for a certain type of, of cancer. I mean, he he didn't come up with that passion. You know, he, he lost a person from his life who, uh, yeah. you know, he was deeply connected to and said, why couldn't we have saved this person? So, so I think it's things like that that create this energy or passion that we don't really fully understand, <laughs> but you're, you're absolutely right. It's, 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 you know, it, it's the ultimate driving force, right? Is, is that passion? And I don't know a better way to put it than say, you know, read what you wrote about it in your book. So I'll leave it there. Well, and thanks. Thanks for that. We've just, uh, we've kind of, we're running out of time. So can you give coordinates or email address or URL or some place where yeah, people, your, your stuff's um, great and we... Yeah, yeah. So I'm usually, if you do a, a search for, you know, Jim and IBM in the search bar, usually I'm somewhere on the first page because my last name Spore is a little hard to spell. But um, yeah, Spore at gmail.com is probably the easiest way to get to me. And my LinkedIn profile has that email address. And I'm on Twitter at, at Jim Spore. And uh, yeah, happy to, happy to engage with uh, people who are interested in these topics. Jim, thanks for taking the time to share uh, some of the things you've done and some of the things that you're doing. Uh, best best wishes to you and and IBM as you as you continue to figure this out. Thanks so much, Dave. Bye for now. Been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. A special thanks to Jim Sporer and IBM. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week when we'll be joined by uh, uh, Rick Miller, president of Olin College. Uh, and uh, join us next week, same time, cha- same channel in our quest to transform higher education. 
you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.